Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. It has been a busy few weeks at the United Nations. On Thursday, December 21st, the UN General Assembly overwhelmingly approved a resolution effectively condemning the United States' decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The resolution passed 128 to 9 with 35 abstentions, despite the fact that in the days leading up to the vote, both Donald Trump and Ambassador Nikki Haley threatened to cut off U.S. aid to any countries who voted against the United States in this resolution. Meanwhile, a day earlier, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Rod al-Hussein, announced that he is stepping down next year and not seeking another term as High Commissioner. This was a shock. Zaid is fairly universally admired in the human rights community as a blunt voice, unafraid of speaking truth to power. And he's been very sharply critical of, of Donald Trump. And it would seem that perhaps he spoke too much truth to too much power because he cited an inhospitable geopolitical political context for human rights advocacy as his reason for not seeking reappointment as High Commissioner for Human Rights. On the line with me to discuss these issues and take a look back at the big events and ideas and themes that have shaped the UN over 2017 is Richard Gowan, a UN expert at the European Council on Foreign Relations. We have a pretty lively conversation about some big changes that were afoot at the UN, how new powers asserted themselves in new and interesting ways, and what that portends for both the United Nations and world affairs in 2018. So it's a little bit of a look back at the year, but looking back at how events over 2017 will shape diplomacy in 2018, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, before we begin, I have some sad news to relay. If you have not already heard, Calestis Juma has passed away at the age of 64. He was a prominent Kenyan academic at Harvard who studied the intersection of technology and global development and was just an all-around interesting and innovative thinker. He was a guest on this show about a year, year and a half ago, and we had a really interesting and lively conversation about how his experience growing up in a flood-prone region of Kenya uh, drove him to want to understand the intersection between the environment and technologies and human society. He was just a one-of-a-kind, really unique thinker. I didn't really know him personally, but after our conversation, we stayed in touch, and he was a very active presence on, on Twitter, and he would send me his his articles, and he's just a one-in-a-generation, one-of-a-kind thinker. Uh, my condolences to those who knew and, and loved him. He will be missed. And I'll, I'll post a link to my conversation with Calestis. Uh, on globaldispatchespodcast.com. For now, here is my conversation with Richard Gallen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I feel sad because it's been a roller coaster year at the UN, but there have been times in 2017 where I felt that Nikki Haley, um, President Trump's ambassador in New York, uh, was really getting a good grip on multilateral diplomacy. And that actually is the broad view of a lot of diplomats and officials uh, around the US. And one I would share as well. Yeah, and I think actually, you you look at the reviews of the Trump administration so far, and Haley continues to be one of the relatively few officials who uh, gets a good um, a good overall rating. And yet here we are right at the end of 2017 after some really tense diplomacy over things like North Korea, you know, basically stumbling into the most stupid, pointless uh, debate in the General Assembly, which the Americans were bound to lose. And I think that Haley has not performed well over the last week because she has been taking a very rigid line in defense of Trump. And it, uh, you know, it's not as good as she can be. So that's interesting, because in the past, she'd sort of positioned herself as like an intermediary between the UN and Donald Trump in a way that's sort of bizarre for, for, for an American ambassador. Usually you expect them to just, you know, simply sort of be vessels for their government. But she has positioned herself, and I think wisely so, as, as an intermediary. But no, as you said, this week, I mean, she was, um, you know, as uh, tonally uh, aggressive as, as Donald Trump threatening not only uh, to uh, cut U.S. aid to countries who voted against the U.S. in this General Assembly resolution, of which there are 128, um, but also to retaliate against the U.N. system as a whole. And she threatened in her remarks ahead of the vote to cut funding to the U.S. over to to cut U.S. funding to the U.N. over this vote. And I'm reminded of this quote by Richard Holbrook, who said, you know, that's like akin to blaming Madison Square Garden when the, the Knicks lose. But her uh, dangerous conflation of the actions of, of UN member states with the body as a whole was sort of unlike her, I thought. Yeah, as I say, it's it's disappointing. And I think that a lot of UN diplomats had felt that, you know, Haley was always as you say, quite a good mediator between Washington and New York. Um, She did really well in negotiations over uh, sanctions against North Korea back in uh, the late summer and early fall. And then suddenly she's behaving in a a crass and counterproductive way over this, frankly, very largely symbolic vote and unnecessary vote on, on Jerusalem, which the Trump administration has brought on itself. So I do feel a little bit dispirited. I I really thought that while the Trump administration has made a lot of um, major errors globally, uh, Haley had kept things roughly on track in New York 
over over the last year and it now feels that we're we're plowing off track in a way that a lot of us were predicting 12 months ago but so far had been avoided mm-hmm. and and it might be a harbinger of things to come potentially if uh, the Trump administration goes ahead on its plans to upend the uh, the Iran nuclear deal uh, you saw again Haley sort of uncharacteristically I, I thought um, sort of give this kind of bizarre press conference uh, to the to the Pentagon press corps standing in front of of the what what she said was a uh, an Iranian missile that was fired in Saudi Arabia from Yemen territory, and it, it sort of had this sort of ring of of like the Bush administration trying to make the case for the war in in Iraq. It was it was sort of bizarre, and she didn't really have the goods and couldn't answer a lot of reporters' questions about the provenance of this uh, missile. Uh, but it was, I think, a symbolic demonstration of her sort of hawkishness on Iran, and that is something that will certainly shape UN diplomacy and diplomacy at the Security Council in, in the coming year. Absolutely. And you know, we should remember that this whole Jerusalem mess really is largely political theater. And although it has really riled up diplomats and it's left people in a pretty foul mood, I think, over the last week, it's not going to fundamentally change the way that the US and other powers behave in New York. By contrast, if we head into a uh, a train crash over Iran um, in 2018, then I think we will see a, a crisis in the UN uh, comparable at least to that which um, took place back in 2003 over Iraq and, and possibly worse. Well, except so this I, time the US will be even more isolated. It won't have you know the United Kingdom to to uh, you know to, to fall back upon because again the JCPOA the Iran nuclear deal it was a deal of the Security Council that was voted you know to by the entirety of the Security Council. So you're going to have this kind of deep fissure in in the UN's most important body. Exactly, so, uh, and that's not the only you know that's not the only sort of storm cloud that continues to hang over the UN. Uh, we've been very fortunate to date that actually. Uh, the Americans and the Chinese have kept things together over North Korea in the Security Council. I think Haley, as I said, has done really well on that file. But all the talk of preemptive war that is coming out of Washington uh, vis-a-vis North Korea, you know, that is being heard in, in UN circles too. And there's a worst case scenario for 2018, which is some sort of conflict on the Korean peninsula that massively divides the council. Plus, uh, major, major divisions over Iran. It could be a very tough year indeed. As well, I would say the worst case scenario is an actual nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula, which is sadly not out of the realm of possibility in 2018. Oh, yeah. And um, in those circumstances, what would transpire in the Security Council would not be amongst anyone's top million concerns. No. Um, but, you know, let's let's step back. Let's not get too caught up in the the gloom and doom of the moment. It has been very striking in 2017 that Beijing and Washington have turned to the UN, have cooperated through the UN on North Korea, have actually probably um, made the Security Council work more like the founders of the organization had hoped in 1945 uh, than we've seen in most of the decades since. Now, that has been a positive story, but it's, it's getting overshadowed and it's um i think getting complicated by the sort of you know really juvenile diplomacy we're seeing over jerusalem at the moment mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and 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 it's it's what's bizarre too. Again, with this Jerusalem vote, is the um, emphasis that the U.S. that the U.S. administration is is has put on this vote. As you said, it's like largely symbolic. We all knew that the the U.S. was going to lose this vote handily. Yet they decided to make a really big deal and issue these coercive threats. I would love to know what has been going through Haley's mind. What has been going through Trump's mind on these issues? I guess there's maybe a 5% chance that they genuinely felt they could turn the General Assembly around. But I think that's very, very unlikely. And if they thought that, they knew very little about how Middle Eastern issues play out in the UN. It seems to me that the president decided that he was going to make his statement on Jerusalem largely to shore up his domestic base, um, especially amongst Evangelical Christians and Republican voters for whom you know, this is a, a really important issue. And Trump's logic was, you know, let this go and burn in the UN. And frankly, from Trump's perspective, a bit of a, a rage in the UN may even be advantageous because he can now go back to his base and say, look, I'm standing up to the wider world. Uh, I'm not like that dreadful Obama who didn't always defend Israel to the hilt in New York. Um, I'm putting America first. I'm putting Israel first. Merry Christmas. Um, and I, you know, I think that is that is the most likely explanation that we're seeing the UN being used as a pawn in the president's domestic political games. Uh, so another issue I, I wanted to uh, get your take on is this uh, news earlier this week that the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaidrad al-Hussein, uh, is stepping down as High Commissioner at the end of next year. Essentially, he's not going to seek reappointment in the position. Now, Zaid is is fairly universally beloved by the human rights community for, uh, you know, being very blunt and outspoken and sort of not a, being afraid to, to speak truth to power. And it would seem that he spoke a little too much truth to a little too much power in his denunciations of, of Donald Trump. And in his letter, you know, announcing his effective, you know, uh, stepping down, it's not really a resignation. He just said he's not going to seek another term. Um, you know, he said that in current geopolitical context does not give him the space he needs to do his job uh, effectively. Um, I would love just to, to get your take on, on the significance of this move, which I actually think is, is highly significant for reasons I'll explain, but I want you to go first. I think this was sadly inevitable. Uh, Zaid has been exceptionally outspoken and exceptionally clear in his criticisms of Trump. And that goes back to the campaign. I mean, he was being very critical of Trump in 2016. And I recall being in Europe about a year ago and a UN human rights official saying to me, you know, in 12 months from now, Zaid will be standing down because there's no way that he can sustain his position in the face of American, uh, uh, you know, American dislike. It's really impressive. I have to say that uh, the High Commissioner has continued to speak out so clearly, despite the fact that he's obviously been um, making it almost impossible uh, to be renewed. And he will, I think he will always gain a lot of a lot of credit for that. One thing that's interesting to me, looking at this from a New York perspective rather than a Geneva perspective, 
is that did you say Geneva is, is where the office of the high commissioner is located sorry, and, and where the yeah. bulk of UN human rights work is um, undertaken. Um, I think that Zaid has actually also done a big favor to the new UN secretary general, Antonio Guterres, who is a lot more cautious in his dealings with the US and a, a lot more cautious overall about talking about human rights, because there have been people criticizing Guterres saying that he's too soft on Trump. He's too soft on other abusive regimes, much more seriously abusive regimes around the world. But the UN has been able to say, yes, Guterres is a diplomat, but we have Zaid speaking truth to power. No, Zaid is the bad cop to Guterres' good cop. And if Zaid is now on the way out, then uh, Guterres loses that, uh, that chip, which is also going to make his life more difficult. So what I find so significant uh, about this move, I mean, is and I, I spoke yesterday to the former U.S. ambassador to the Human Rights Council, who, you know, who made the point is uh, Keith Harper has been on on the show. Um, and, you know, he made the point. He's like, listen, any self-respecting high commissioner for human rights has to um, criticize the United States from time to time, you know, over things like the death penalty or, you know, actions of, of U.S. military abroad. And, you know, historically, every U.S. president since the founding of uh, this position in 1993 has, you know, accepted those criticisms. They may have disagreed with it, um, but they'll take their lumps in order to just preserve the independence of the uh, idea of, of an independent high commissioner. What changes with Trump is that this is the first time you have a U.S. president who is so just openly contemptuous of, of human rights norms. The U.N. human rights system cannot sort of exist in, in an environment where an American president is so contemptuous of, of human rights norms. It just sort of this resignation demonstrates that. I think that's true. And, you know, it's it, it, this is a good moment to pause and say that actually without wanting to be nostalgic, the Obama administration did a huge amount to make the UN's human rights work credible. Uh, you know, even European diplomats would admit that Obama's team in Geneva were really, really good at um, the, the very painstaking, uh, you know, often very frustrating work of human rights diplomacy. And over the last decade, that has meant that the the whole UN human rights machinery has been taken much, much more seriously. Obama himself was willing to go in front of the General Assembly and admit that there were problems, uh, especially over race in the United States, uh, which was a, a fairly remarkable thing to do. Trump is the absolute 180 degree opposite of that. And even if Zaid had been a little more cautious and a little less willing to put pressure on the US, I think that we would see the UN human rights system looking pretty shaky right now. Uh, one question that keeps on coming back to us uh, in New York and and to our, our counterparts in Geneva is whether the Trump administration may pull out of the uh, UN Human Rights Council altogether uh, at some point in the next year. Mm -hmm. I have to say that I think that it's almost certain to happen, just mm -hmm. as Trump has pulled out of UNESCO, um, has declared that the US will pull out of the Paris climate deal, um, as Trump recently pulled out of uh, UN talks on migration. At some point, he's going to walk away from the Human Rights Council in, in Geneva and make a lot of noise about it. I agree. So, I, I agree. That's almost inevitable in the coming year. You know, it's a number of countries, including the UK and the Dutch, have been 
working super hard with the Americans to try and find some sort of compromise. But, you know, it's just going to happen. Uh, you know, it's just a sort of a matter of political gravity. The US will drop out at some point. And, you know, all that put together um, does make one feel pretty gloomy about the state of the international human rights system, especially as at the same time, uh, the Chinese in particular are really starting to push back on human rights norms across the UN, whether it's in the Human Rights Council, whether it's in planning for UN peace operations. Mm -hmm. And you can really see the political space for defending liberal norms, liberal values uh, in the UN system starting to uh, recede quite rapidly. And and it, that is something, so, so that, that sort of Chinese ascendancy and as part of that ascendancy devaluing of human rights norms is already manifesting itself sort of behind the scenes. I think you and I probably have noticed it. I mean, in, in particular in this debate over uh, funding of, of UN peacekeepers. So earlier this year, Nikki Haley uh, was part of kind of like a, you know, a push by the Trump administration to reduce um, the cost of UN peacekeeping missions, you know, saw all these wide budget cuts and the Chinese sort of cleverly inserted themselves, okay, we're going to cut human rights officers from missions then. If, if you want cuts, we're happy to cut human rights officers from missions. The Chinese had actually started that push in 2016 and um, made a, they made a lot of noise about um, cutting back both human rights officers and also officials dealing with sexual abuse by peacekeepers. But it didn't go very far in the Obama era. Um, as you say, it, you know, the threat feels more real um, now, that, now that Trump is in office. I mean, I think, you know, I think we have to be honest about this. Even in the Obama era, you know, human rights norms are something mm -hmm. which are often only nodded to in, in the UN. And we... You know, we've seen all the major powers, very much including the US, ignore human rights norms uh, as they wish. But, you know, the, the current the current UN system with its very strong emphasis on on liberal values is really rooted in the post-Cold War moment, a moment where human rights were in the ascendancy. And it, it does feel uh it does feel depressingly likely that China in particular, but also obviously you know, Russia and some other um, authoritarian powers are going to be able to, to turn the clock back um, unless, you know, unless there is a major push from the West uh, to defend the human rights system. And it's, it's not clear if you can have that major push at a time when the US is uh, going in the wrong direction on human rights itself. And the UK, which is another major uh, advocate of, of liberal norms, is uh, caught up with its domestic troubles. So this leads nicely into your sort of end of year piece for World Politics Review, in which you identify 2017 as the year in which some of these trends um, became more and more manifest, namely that um, non-Western countries, principally Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia, uh, have been able to use the UN to advance their agendas in ways previously not that that had sort of not they've not been able to put done in, in previous years. Um, what happened? So how did we get here? Well, I wrote this piece because, you know, 
like you, I've spent a lot of this year um, sort of parsing the, the minutiae of the Trump administration's engagement with the UN. And I've also spent a lot of time focusing on the quite technical small bore um, reforms that Antonio Guterres has introduced on things like development and, and management as, as secretary general. And I think that it is worth following you know, all those things. And I, you know, I do think that despite the sound and fury around him, Guterres is making some progress on some important issues. But I realized that it was necessary to step back and it was necessary to, to ask, you know, if we put the US and Guterres to one side, who is really shaping the UN in, in 2017? And the answer I came to is that three non-Western powers have been really decisive. The first uh, has been Russia, and Moscow has basically taken control of all serious discussions of Syria uh, in New York over the last year. In the Obama era, the US tried to work with the Russians, often in a very frustrating fashion, over Syria, but now Trump has stepped back. And except for the, um, the moment where uh, the US fired some tomahawks into Syria, Washington has really said this is now Moscow's issue. And we've seen Moscow take advantage of that. It has sidelined UN mediators uh, dealing with the Syrian government. It has vetoed the continuation of UN investigations into chemical weapons incidents in, in Syria. And you know, diplomats are, are really quite blunt around the Security Council now that Moscow is running the show. And so that's the first thing I highlight, because it's quite unusual, actually, for the UN to be having to follow a non-Western power's lead um, in, a, in a peacemaking process. Over the last 20 or 30 years, it's almost always been the US or the Europeans who've been setting the agenda. And, and, and I should say, as you note in your piece, the implications of the fact that the US or Western Euro European powers are setting the agenda means that like the peace agenda is like broadly liberal with votes and respect for human rights and, you know, promises of election and multi-party democracies, etc. But that's might not be the case going forward. No, I mean, look, the Russians say they want an election in Syria, but I don't think anyone believes they want a free and fair election. And also, clearly, we're not going to see much uh, much chance of, uh, you know, human rights being promoted or defended in, uh, you know, Russian and Iranian controlled Syria in the near future. So I think this is quite a significant turning point, actually, for the UN. Um, in the piece, I also try to balance that by looking at um, what's happening in Yemen, where Western powers have been turning a blind eye to another country, which is Saudi Arabia, that has decided that it will use, you know, really brutal force. Um, to try and end a conflict. And I argue that while we may criticize the Russians, we've got to be honest about the fact that uh, we have been aiding and abetting the Saudis in, in the disastrous Yemeni campaign, which is something you, know, you, Mark, have written a lot about, and a situation where we see famine, we see cholera emerging. Uh, because of the sheer breakdown of the state. Yeah, we're, we're speaking on a day that the ICRC, uh, the International Committee for the Red Cross, said that one million uh, cholera cases threshold has been now been passed in in Yemen. It's it's just disgusting, and I you know I would also say that as someone who follows the UN, I'm not sure I've given an, enough attention to to Yemen. It's uh, it's perhaps too easy to follow the TikTok of Syria diplomacy and not 
not really grasp exactly the scale of the crisis in Yemen. So I wanted to emphasize yeah. that the Saudis I, are playing a similar game to the Russians. Um, it's just that they are treated in a different way in the Security Council. I, I should just say as, as a side note, one of my like lowlights of, of 2017 was attending a small briefing with the top UN humanitarian official in Yemen. This was in, in September. And, you know, it was just like an hour of, of him answering questions and, and describing the situation on the ground in Yemen. And it was bleak and it was hopeless. And he emphasized that there is no hope. This is hopeless. And it was just, it was awful. It was really, really just, just both disturbing. And I'm just not used to hearing UN officials speak in such sort of stark and, and sort of hopeless terms. Yeah. I mean, it's not the actually sadly the only case where that sort of despair has started to creep in mm. last year well like for me it's the most um the mm. most shocking so, you know, so one, one of the other cases is is myanmar and the yeah. um the massive ethnic cleansing and i think you know clearly large-scale violence against the rohingya which is something else i refer to in the piece and that leads to the the influence of the third power um and a third power that i think over the long term is more decisive than Russia and certainly more decisive than the Saudis, which is China. And uh, something that I argue in in this sort of like end of year essay that uh, you mentioned is that the Chinese have really, really expanded their their influence in the UN over the last year. Um, in some ways, for good, we've seen Beijing, for example, stand up for the Paris climate change deal even after Trump announced he would pull out, but you know, for some cases for ill. I mean, Beijing has basically stopped any serious discussion of diplomatic action over, over Myanmar. Uh, in the middle of all this, coming back to where we were at the start of our conversation, we have, um, we have DPRK. And DPRK, the North Korean nuclear crisis, has become the, the central, the defining um, problem before the Security Council this year. And although the Chinese are very uncomfortable with that and don't as far as we can see, really know how to get out of the um, uh, the quagmire um, of of North Korea. Uh, the, the mere fact that they you know, they are the go to power, they are the the crucial power in uh, in any diplomacy over over North Korea has further raised their their status and their influence in in the UN. So my overall conclusion, looking back over 2017, is that Trump has given us. Sound and Fury. Um, he's really he's really majoring on the Sound and Fury this week, um, but uh, it, it's actually China that is the sort of you know the long term um, influencer that is coming up uh, coming up in the system right now. All right. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time. This was, you know, helpful as always. Um, and we'll see you uh, in the new year. I, I think I can predict very little with confidence about the UN in 2018, except that a lot is going to happen. A and lot is going to happen. Things uh, will pass. Things will fail. Yeah, no. Yeah, and I rather, I rather doubt that a lot of it will be good. But, you know... Uh, Life is full of surprises, and maybe we'll be talking at the end of 2018 discussing how um, President Trump and President Xi engineered world peace. Uh, unless, uh, unless New York and Denver are obliterated in a nuclear holocaust. Uh, <laughs> right. 
you, you know, that, that actually is even more miserable and though than I, I intend <laughs> to finish this conversation on. Um, I don't think they target Denver. Well, they might, you know, be targeting like the airbase in Colorado Springs, but just like miss. That's true. But I mean, I, I rather suspect that uh, wherever they target, they'll they'll miss. So, you know, <laughs> well, um, well right. happy new year. Yeah. To- happy new year oh. to you, Richard. Thank you. Oh. All right, big thank you to Richard. Uh, he holds the title as being the most frequent guest on this uh, podcast, and I will, of course, post a link to his uh, piece on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed.